working our way through Romans on Sunday night. We have an amazing text coming into just a, a fascinating part of the book. The letter that changed the world. It's not an untrue statement, and it's not hyperbole. It really did make the religious world a totally different place. The letter of Romans. And uh, we're up to part 13. We're in chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 23. We have uh, the Lord's Supper in just a little while. It'll be a good night for it on this subject. And then we'll uh, take some requests to the Lord and prayer groups. Romans 6, 12 to 23. Let not sin therefore reign. If I were underlining, I'd circle that word reign. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. So we we have sin in us. We have fallen natures. He's not talking about that. He's talking about where sin starts to reign, rule. And when you know that's happening is it starts to control the actions of the body. Okay? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey with your bodies those inner passions. He's going to be even more specific that that's what he's talking about in the next verse. Do not present your members. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members... To God as instruments for righteousness. And immediately, I would hope, everybody in the room that was here this morning is thinking, that's what he was talking about this morning. With uplifted hands and the presenting of the body to the Lord in worship. Anybody remember that? It's a long time ago. This is a very consistent theme in the New Testament. So that's why in our worship, it's not just our thoughts and our hearts. We don't just sit and contemplate God. You should do that. It's not less than that. But it's more than that. The bodies get presented to the Lord in in worship. 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. So somehow we'll get there tonight. This understanding of grace as opposed to law, it, it, it has some effect in terms of freeing us in presenting our bodies to the Lord. That's a relevant topic. I want to know how that works because I live in a body and most of you do too. Sin will have no dominion over you. I want to get there. Since you are not under the law but under grace, grace makes a difference. He doesn't say what it is yet, but it makes a difference. Okay, 15. What then? So here's a wrong understanding of grace. Are we to sin... Because we are not under law, but under grace. Is that the difference grace makes? You get away with sin now, whereas before you couldn't. By no means. That's not it, he says. That's not even close to what I'm talking about. And now he's going to prove it. 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, 
which leads to righteousness. So, so the idea here is all actions take you somewhere. So you can't just keep sinning because there's grace, because it, just, it will lead to death, he says. Grace won't protect you from that. 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Okay, so now, now he's not talking just the outward members. Now he's talking about a change that takes place in here, but it affects the outward members of the body. We were slaves to sin. We've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Strange phrase. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is a pretty dense passage of Scripture we're working through here. 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now... There's a change through grace. Now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sanctification means growth in more righteousness. 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So when you were slaves of sin, you weren't worried about holiness, pleasing God, that you were totally free from all of that. 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? There's been a change. Now they're ashamed of those things. They weren't ashamed before. Now they're ashamed. That's an important part. The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God. Isn't that a phrase? Slaves of God. That doesn't sound pleasant, though, does it? Slaves of God. I want to talk about that. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. And its end, eternal life. This is the verse we all know. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's just pray. So much to digest in your word. Your word is precious. It's not always light and breezy, but it's precious. And we want to bring our best thinking to it. And in addition to that, we want you, Holy Spirit, to come and unopen our hearts. Open our hearts, rather, and and let let your word kind of bear fruit and sink in deep. Paul prayed for the Ephesians that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. Let that happen as we study your word tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's inevitable that Paul bump into this issue in the text. That word, therefore, in verse 12 shows he's been leading up to something based on what he said earlier. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions, verse 12. That's, that's Paul's way of saying, 
because of all that I have been saying to you up to this point, it's unthinkable that you adopt kind of a light-hearted view of any kind of continuance in sinful behavior. So he's concerned, lest anyone misunderstand some of the beautiful things he's been saying in this letter. Things like this, Romans 5.1. Since we have by, been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Romans 5.9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's that phrase that so many want to avoid, the wrath of God. Or Romans 6.5. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What, what wonderful, promise-filled phrases. Great descriptions on something massive that God has done through Jesus Christ on our behalf. And, 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 and we're being called just to bask in joy and hope and assurance. How are we going to live now with those truths in our mind? That's the issue that is concerning Paul in our text today. If all of this is true of us right now, if we are united in Christ's death and life, if we are justified and have peace with God and we've been saved from wrath through Jesus Christ, if all of that is true, does it matter if we continue in sin? 6.15, are, are we to continue in sin, rather? 6.1, that grace may abound? 6.15, are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? That seems to be Paul's concern. If you think grace comes and just, just gets you off the hook for everything... Well, then we ought to be able to just continue living in sin. And right there, which we'll unpack later on, is grace received gives birth to love for Christ. And here's a phrase, remember it, we'll, we'll talk about it at the end. Love carries its own compulsion. The person you love has the most control over your life because love carries its own compulsion. Holiness is pursued. This is what Paul's going to get to. Holiness is pursued with diligence. It's pursued with gusto. But that's not legalism. Love motivates and love is the strongest compulsion ever. So, Paul began working through these verses in last week's text, concluding in verse 11. So, 6.11, he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But, but he's not quite done with that thought. Consider myself dead and alive to God in Christ Jesus. How do I do that? How do I consider? There's the verb. How do I consider myself dead to sin? How do I 
consider myself alive to God in Christ Jesus? And how can I be sure I'm considering this as seriously as I should? And what does a life look like when it's considering itself dead to sin and considering itself alive unto God through Christ? That's the subject. That's the issue that Paul's going to deal with in the remainder of this sixth chapter. And here's the conclusion he's going to reach. Let me tell you the conclusion before we work our way to the conclusion. It sets Paul's blood boiling. He's going to say that any experience of conversion that allows for a willful continuance in sin is fake conversion. That's what he's going to say. I didn't say never falls into sin. Make sure you get that. Any experience of conversion that allows for a willful continuance in sin is counterfeit. God's not in it. Either conversion sets the whole life on a new course or it's fake. And, and now what we want to do is we need to look at why Paul can make such a bold claim. That's quite a claim to make. So again, the question under study is, what does it mean to consider myself dead to sin? Point number one. To consider myself dead to sin means being aware each moment is filled with the power of presenting my body either to God or to future sin. Each moment. I get that in 12, 13, and 14. Just so we keep our thinking rooted in the text. Where he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Don't let it. To make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So after taking... (laughs) a chapter and a half describing what God has done for us in Christ. Paul's doing something different here, and you have to notice the switch. After taking a chapter and a half to describe what God has done for us in Christ, Paul now wants to talk about what we must do. It's a little different emphasis. He describes my ordinary days, your ordinary days. You're going to get a lot of them this coming week. The moments of our lives. And he's going to say, each one is an occasion where we don't, we don't merely exist. You don't merely go through 24 hours. But for 24 hours, you're, you're presenting yourself in one way or another. Either to God or to sin. You're going to be doing that all this week. You're going to start tomorrow. This is what you're going to be doing. You'll do it even if you don't think about doing it. You'll just do it badly. You and I can set ourselves up for enslavement to our own bodies and passions. That's what he says in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. You can do that. 
or we can present our bodies quite literally to the Lord in such a way that deeper patterns of holiness and righteousness will become easier and inevitable. That's in 13. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So, so follow. Follow here. The, the capacity for sin is with all of us. That'll be till Jesus comes again. We'll be like him. When we see him, we'll be like him. Not yet. So the capacity for sin, it's in me. And it's in you. Paul has already explained, Romans 5, how Adam's sin has affected all of mankind. It's in verses 12 through 17 of Romans 5. So, so we're all vulnerable to sin. Each moment next week will have risks against holiness. That's what Paul's talking about. And that's why he gets so specific. He doesn't just talk about making some general mystical commitment to Christ. No, he's talking about your, your body. He's talking about your members. And how you present those things. What you look at. What you do. Where you go. The things you discuss. The things you listen to. Don't, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, verse 12. Don't present your members to sin, 13. Present your members to God, 13b. Notice that language of presenting. I just want you to notice how it's very different from the terminology of much of the evangelical church today. Maybe it's better to think about presenting more than we do. We talk about accepting Christ. It's not bad. Except that it smacks of a one-time action rather than an ongoing one. You see what I mean? We talk about asking Jesus into your heart. Again, that's not bad. But it designates something interior, private, individual. No one else knows. It's in my heart. And to all of this, Paul, Paul wants to just bring a slightly additional emphasis. It's not that those things aren't true, but there's something else that he wants to add here. He says, I'm not talking about your devotions here. I'm not talking about your prayer group. I'm not talking about the feelings you have as you sing some worship course on Sunday. I'm talking about all the things you do during the week through your body, your members, the things you expose yourself to. Don't set yourself up for bondage. Don't work against grace. School yourself in grace by the way you present your members all week long. Secondly, how do we consider this? Point number two, remember the power of presenting your members extends beyond the moment itself. This is so important. I get it in 15 and 16 of our text. What then? After thinking about grace, are, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either to sin, which I would circle this, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The, the key phrase, leads to death, Leads to righteousness. 
So, so the idea is, remember the question we're looking at. How shall we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive unto God? 6.11. And Paul's going to give another really profound part of the answer. He says, day by day you're presenting yourself. That's one thing. We looked at that. But more than that, each moment of decision leads into another. So, so no choice either to Christ or to sin. No choice ends in itself. It opens the door to further choices. It's, it's direction setting. No daily choice is an end in itself. Each moment only looks self-contained. But every moment unwraps a bit more of your eternal shape and destiny. One of my favorite quotes doesn't come from a Christian at all. One of my very favorite quotes is from Sitting Bull. It's a true quote, too. You can Google it. He was explaining his life, and he said, Two big dogs war inside my life every day. A great big evil dog and a great big good dog. And someone said, which one wins? And Sitting Bull said, obviously, the one I feed the most. Oh, man, take that home from church. The one I feed the most. Isn't that true? The one I feed the most. Choices are direction setting. So now now we're coming to ground zero. Uh, the core of a sound understanding about sin and righteousness. How much does it matter if I willfully continue in sin? Maybe small, maybe private, unknown to anybody else. Well, Paul would say, here's how much it matters. It leads to death. It's taking you somewhere. I'm not talking about sinless perfection here. I know we're not going to get there. We should try, but I know we're not going to get there in this life. But there's this particular danger that Paul's dealing with of willing ourselves into sin. I have enough times when I fall into sin. We fall into sin sometimes in spite of our best effort to resist it. But, but when we become casual about choosing patterns of sin, when we, that's what he means in verse 16, when we obey sin, you see, there's an understanding in it, a choosing in it. There's, there's nothing but death at the end of that road. Nothing but death. When you surrender the self to sin, you entrench slavery into your future. You won't feel the full weight of it in the, in the adrenaline rush of the, pres, of the fleeting pleasure of sin at the moment. But Jesus' words are still just crisply true. John 8, 34, truly, truly. He says truly, truly because we don't believe him. Anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The same is true, by the way. The same is true on the positive side, obedience to righteousness. Paul's Paul's not talking here about the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's very true, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about my righteousness. He's talking about the seemingly small, almost mundane ways. 
when in the power of grace, the body and its members, the choice of hands, feet, eyes, and ears, when they're presented to Christ in little ways that don't seem all that significant in themselves, that the band doesn't play, you don't hear the hallelujah chorus, in little steps that are pleasing to the Lord, Paul would say, your sanctification's growing. There's more happening that's good here than you see right now. Obedience which leads to righteousness, 16b. A momentum of righteousness. May look small now. Your steps to reach out and practically serve Christ, maybe in the body of Christ, they don't feel full of dynamism and power, but they are taking your whole being into future grace and deeper righteousness. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. And then here's these words. From, from one degree of glory to another. Right? You don't go right to the head of the line. <laughs> doesn't all burst at once. One degree, two degrees, three degrees, another degree, another degree. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He ensures this. Be faithful with small steps of obedience. Point number three. Paul's deeper explanation of New Testament conversion. I get this in 17 to 23, and we're in the the home stretch. 617. But thanks be to God... That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. I said to remember that phrase, obedient from the heart. Something happened. You've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Uh, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, slavery and those images. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, remember each act leads to more, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading into sanctification. Now the question. When you are slaves of sin, think back, Paul says, You were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. They're not going anywhere. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now he'll do the great contrast of everything he's been saying. The wages of sin is death. That's all you're going to get. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So that opening phrase in verse 17, but thanks be to God, to God, shows the order of events in Paul's mind. In other words, their obedience didn't earn God's grace. It's not that they were 
presenting themselves well, and then God said, okay, you've measured up. I will now redeem you. That's not it. Rather, God's grace in their lives set in motion everything about their Christian experience and the way they presented themselves and the way they lived day by day. That's what grace does. How did it happen? And then you get this weird phrase in verse 17. He says, their lives were transformed by what Paul calls the standard of teaching. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, what Paul doesn't say is really interesting. He doesn't just say, though it would have been true, that they were saved by Jesus, that they were saved by his shed blood. He doesn't even just say they were saved, though this would be true, by God's grace. Immediately, this, you were, this standard of teaching to which you were committed, there's a, there's a content to this gospel. It's not like Oprah spirituality. It's not people trying to find their inner selves. It's not people just trying to get their act together. This is people hearing, understanding, and by God's grace, reaching out to specific gospel truth about their sin and about salvation in Jesus Christ. He says, and he says this was a deep commitment. They were committed to it. 17, the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That word standard, the standard of teaching. I'll give you the Greek word. You tell me what English word you think we get from it. Tupos. Can you think of anything? It's where we get the word type. Remember typewriters? It means, it means to cast an imprint by striking a blow, to impart a shape. So, so this teaching, it wasn't just heard and remembered the way countless rabbis shared their traditions. These people were changed by the truth the way, the way clay is shaped at the hands of a sculptor. They were committed to the teaching, and it implies a changed shape of the whole life. Now, how's that work? Here's how I want to wrap this up. When I asked for the pen, I wrote down these words under this last point when we sang, I think it was the last course we sang, His mercy reigns. His mercy reigns. How does mercy reign? But, uh, it's not just the idea that, well, there's really, really wonderful mercy. It's magnificent mercy. It's glorious mercy. That's what mercy is in itself. But he's not talking about that. When he says his mercy reigns, he's talking about mercy being glorious in what it does, right? It, it's, it's the activity of mercy. Reigning. When, when, you, when you come to the end of all this, so, you can look at it in a way that's just mechanical. You, you used to present your members, your time, your thoughts. It's not always just horribly wicked things. Just material gain, uh, the idols of the culture you live in. You, 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 your whole body was geared into these things, he says. And now, 
week by week, day by day, my whole body is geared into pursuing Christ and pursuing his will. And you can look at it this way. So you used to do this. Don't do that anymore. Do this now. And if that's, he does say that, but if that's all you see, you're missing. You're missing the heart of how this change happens. That would just be legalism. You used to sow your life this way. Now start sowing it this way because it's going to be way better for you. That's not Christianity. That's moralism. But grace comes. What does grace do? Does grace, this is the question, does it just mean I can continue with my present sinful life because I don't have to worry about the consequences anymore? I'm off the hook. Paul says, no, that's not it. That's not it. Well, then what does grace do? Like mercy, it, it rains. Here's what it does, and here's how you know how grace works in your life. You obeyed from the heart. I talked about that phrase about four times. And here's what grace does when you receive it from the Lord. It's not legalism. What grace does is it makes me look at sin in my life and he says, what I, all I feel is shame. I can't be content with it anymore. I, I, I am ashamed. Okay? And here's what else it does. It changes my heart. I love what God has done for me in Christ. It starts with the gospel. I'm committed to the gospel. But here's, it's not just like learning geography. It makes me incredibly grateful. It makes me love God more than anything else. And love carries its own compulsion. So there's a striving for holiness, but it's not legalism. It's a heart that's been changed by love for Christ. Does everybody in the room get the difference? It's the motive that changes. I feel so ashamed. This is different from This is different from feeling ashamed because somebody caught me in my sin. That's not what he's talking about. This isn't someone who has their sin exposed and they say, who are you to judge me? That church, you guys are all the same. Bunch of loveless hypocrites. All you do is judge people. and Whenever someone starts talking like that, you can see where grace is missing because what grace would do is, you wouldn't have to tell me. I'm sickened by my sin. I can't, I can't live with this another minute. That's what grace does. And I strive for holiness. I will, I will, I will labor to the, the smallest detail of the things that could possibly be harmful to me. But I'm not legalistic. It's out of love. Love carries its own compulsion. That's what Paul is talking about. So you can see why he says, how can, you, how can you talk about receiving God's grace and continuing in sin? You ought to feel ashamed of it. How can you talk about continuing in sin when your greatest love ought to be pleasing your Lord? That's how the gospel works. It's not legalistic. It's a new heart. And all God's people said... <laughs>